Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about the work that we're doing at City College and how it matters to people across the city and throughout the world. So on this show, we'll be discussing the practical application of our research and solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, and the like. This year, 2020, is likely to go down as one of the most challenging years, at least in our lifetime and maybe in world history. COVID-19 pandemic has taken the lives of over 200,000 Americans and over 985,000 people worldwide. On top of a population already suffering from PTSD as a result of losing loved ones, friends, and jobs to COVID-19, witnessed the televised murder of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin. Video showed Chauvin with his knee on Floyd's neck as he struggled to breathe and took his last breath. And of course, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, we hear and talk about Breonna Taylor and other deaths. And so attention has really focused on systemic racism and in some ways how that's expressed in police violence. A worldwide outrage has caused an unprecedented amount of people from all cultures and all walks of life to take to the streets to call for equal treatment of black people and people of color. The Black Lives Matter movement, which had previously been marginalized and ridiculed with retorts like All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, has now been embraced by millions of people, although not by everybody. Historically, Black athletes who've used their platform to call for justice in America have sacrificed their careers, and we have lots of historical precedents for that. Heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali refused to serve in the Vietnam War in 1967 and was stripped of his boxing license and sentenced to five years in prison because of that decision. Now, the ruling was later overturned by the Supreme Court, and he never went to jail. But according to the Atlantic Magazine, NBA players Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, along with NFL player Jim Brown and other black athletes, met with Ali. At the meeting, he won their support for his stance as a conscientious objector to the war. The meeting was dubbed the Ali Summit and has remained a pivotal moment in the history of activism among athletes. Uh, During the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, gold medalist Tommy Smith and bronze medalist uh, John Carlos were expelled from the Games for raising black-gloved fists in the air during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner. And of course, in 2016, after consistently taking a knee during the national anthem in protest of police brutality in the U.S., Former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick opted out of his contract and became a free agent. The Undefeated reports that to date, he has only been able to return to the game of football as an avatar in the Madden 21 video game. And although he ranks in the top 15 among elite quarterbacks in that video game, he has not been signed by an NFL team. However, since the murder of George Floyd, more professional athletes have shown public support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And today we'll be discussing athletes and activism with Professor Stanley Thangaraj of the Anthropology Department at City College of New York and former NFL player David Alexander Caldwell, who I just learned has been known since he was young as DAC, his initials. In the first half of the show, Professor Thangaraj will be our primary guest. As I said, he teaches anthropology at City College and he focuses on Asian Americans, gender and sexuality and cross-cultural perspectives. He's the author of Desi Hoop Dreams, Pick Up Basketball and the Making of Asian American Masculinity. And we'll be talking to Professor Garage in just a few moments. On the second half of the show, David Alexander Caldwell, David Caldwell will join us. David played professional football for the Indianapolis Colts, the New York Giants, and the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Canada. He's currently vice president of the NFL Alumni Association and a member of the NFL Alumni Medical Advisory Board. And I will say, full disclosure, is doing a little bit of work uh, with us at City College. And I'll also say his father is a City College graduate. So David is becoming more and more deeply embedded in the City College family. So now let me tell you in a little bit more depth about Professor Thangaraj, our first guest. As I said, he's in the anthropology department, currently assistant professor, and that's formerly known as the Anthropology, Gender Studies, and International Studies Department at City College of New York. His interests are at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and citizenship. He studies immigrant and refugee communities in the U.S. South to understand how they manage the black-white racial logic through gender. 
and the kinds of horizontal processes of race me. I mentioned his book, Desi Hoop Dreams, Pick Up Basketball, The Making of Asian American Masculinity. That book looks at the relationship between race and gender in co-ethnic-only South Asian American sporting culture. His newest research is on Kurdish America, which received the 2015 American Studies Association Comparative Ethnic Studies Award. His third project explores how race, class, and sexuality factor in the construction of the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Professor Thangaraj, it's a great pleasure. I'd like to welcome you to From City to the World. Thank you for being here. Thank you very, very much for inviting me, President Boudreaux. I am thrilled and honored to be here, you know, and in the language of sport to just say, let's play ball. Okay, great. Let's do that. Well, here's the first pitch. I want to ask you why you think it's important, either either generally or at this specific moment, that athletes seem to be taking the opportunity of their celebrity to take a stand, particularly against racism in this country, although the fact that NBA players were recently seen wearing the, the famous descent collar of Ruth Bader Ginsburg suggests that there's a kind of broader political consciousness and willing to make political expressions among athletes today. I guess I started by saying, why do you think it's important? But let me not guess your answer. Do you think this is important? And if so, why? Yeah. So one of the things we see here is we have, for the first time in U.S. history and in global history, the ways in which professional sport leagues across the world, from the WNBA to the NBA, MLS, MLB, to uh, Premier League soccer, football, in the UK and across Europe to, you know, racing and then NASCAR to tennis. And so what we have for the first time in our world history is a movement for justice led by players, athletes across the sporting spectrum. And, you know, I just want to mention that it was also mobilized through the WNBA as a leading figure and the players as leading figures in the fight for racial justice, the seven bloody marks as emblems of the bullets in Jacob Blake's back were on the back of the player's shirts for the WNBA as a powerful visual reminder and a call to action. And so what they did was they opened the door for the NBA, especially with the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, following suit. And what this does is allow us to see how this type of expansive expression of solidarity means that the players are calling for a type of intersectional justice that refuses to see anti-Black racism as separate from misogyny, from transphobia, from homophobia, and from xenophobia. And so remembering Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her fight for gender equity is so clearly a part of the movement for Black Lives Matter. In fact, it is a call right now to remember Breonna Taylor and that Black Lives Matter is a movement for justice in the most expansive way. And so what we see here that I just found so fascinating is the role of the WNBA as the leaders for justice and high profile women's athletes like Naomi Osaka and Megan Rapinoe, who have paved the way to discuss anti-Black racism and police brutality alongside a wide list of other social demands like equity and pay. So these professional athletes, as I mentioned again, for the first time are practicing what we would term intersectional justice, to use Black Lives Matter as a call for equity, as a call for challenging the system of racial inequality and white supremacy in the U.S. and challenging a larger system of white supremacy across the globe. And so in this moment, and thank you, President, for mentioning Ruth Bader Ginsburg and honoring her is also a time to say Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Tony McDade, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Nina Pop, Nina Pop. And it is an acknowledgement that Black Lives Matter is also acknowledging Black Women's Lives Matter and that Black trans lives matter. Thank you. Let me ask you about the, the specificity of, of athletes as opposed to, to other people in public light that are speaking up. I mean, you know, athletes aren't the only ones who do this. There are, there are other you know, singers, musicians, actors you know, at award shows often take political stands and, and face 
a lot of the same criticism athletes have come into, that they should stay in their lane. The Dixie Chicks have recently changed their name from the Dixie Chicks to the Chicks, but they lost their conservative base years ago when they started speaking out against the Bush administration. But So I wanted to ask, because you focus specifically on athletes as opposed to other public figures, is there something specific about athletic activism when athletes are the ones that step forward and, you know, people that make a living with the skill of their bodies talking about violence that's inflicted on black and brown bodies across the nation? Thank you. What a beautiful question. And I think this is so important to remember, you know, like the presence of athletes makes us also think about the relationship between nation and sport and the ways in which the national body and the nation are represented through sport. I mean, thus, since the 1940s and 50s, we have the including of the national anthem at all professional league sports. We have the military flyovers, the honoring of the military, all of this is related to anxieties about the Cold War and fighting against the Soviets and to create a certain type of tough masculinity. So if sport is most emblematic of the nation and what the nation can do, then athletes play a pivotal role. They are already seen as the nation in action, as the models of ideal American masculinity. And so their role is incredibly important because they're already imagined and desired as the most beautiful and muscular version of the American. And so what we see here in sports is also, it's also linked to arts too, right? Because for me, as a kid growing up, and I think Dak might, you know, um, agree in some ways too, like Chuck D and Public Enemy was it. Like Chuck D spoke to me in ways about fighting the power that allowed me to see how art and sport were related, right? And that's why I think it's also important to see that sport became a site where people, entry into sport could be a form of activism and resistance. While we see now athletes taking up signs, you know, protesting and so on, just entry into sport in U.S. history has been so critical to challenging the racial demography of the nation. And so like Jack Johnson, Althea Gibson, Waturo Misaka, or just some of those names. However, art and sport are connected in many ways because with the loss of funding for schools, with the increased policing and increased incarceration of black and brown communities, sport and art became one of the few available venues for social mobility, for giving back to one's community. And through that process of, you know, succeeding through those realms, bringing in these histories and experiences that are never apart from who they are, whether as an artist or as an athlete, right? But the ways in which sport differs is that unlike art, which has a very particular consuming demographic. Unless you become the most world-renowned artist, you will be known to only a very specific subgroup of people. While sport differs because you have incredible national and global appeal to various racial communities, to various class backgrounds, to various religious and national backgrounds. And so what this does is it allows us to reach out and succeed in reaching a much greater demographic. But the difference also between art and sport is, art is seen as a realm of innovation, creativity, and intellect. And all throughout our long histories of colonialism and white supremacy in the US, we have seen how black communities both across the globe and in the US have always been racially constructed as never smart enough, never creative enough, never innovative enough. And so the emergence of black artists was a challenge to that notion and that pseudo genetic, you know, ideas of black inferiority. So but then with sport, we see the ways in which it's a different framing of the black athlete. And that's we've all heard. And, you know, I know, you know, Dak at this moment is going to, you know, really stand up and shout when we hear this phrase, shut up and dribble, shut up and dribble. And that phrase heard throughout the sporting world, 
you know, for African-American athletes taking up politics is a refusal to acknowledge and accept the full humanity and diversity of blackness. It is a statement that shows how the long histories of slavery did not end after the Civil War, as the silencing of black athletes is a statement that their bodies as forms of labor and as commodities matter, but not their voices or their histories. And the protests right now by athletes through this incredible platform and stage they have is a reclaiming of humanity, stressing their voices and histories and showcasing their intellectual power to showcase the brain that is working through such organization. And in in that way, what it does is sport is something accessible to all. Like you can put up a hoop anywhere to play ball, right? Is a way in which now the protests on the streets and the protests on the courts are coming together with possibilities for incredible change. You know, what you said about the relationship between athleticism in America and national identity, it really resonated with me. I remember when I went to the Philippines for the first time to do research and their whole basketball league is organized around corporations. So you don't play for Manila or for Davao. You play for Kenebra Gin or San Miguel Beer or Tanduay Rum or Cigarette Company or something like that. And I never understood how the kind of fanaticism could be generated around a commercial brand as opposed to Detroit, New York, San Francisco, Dallas, Texas, but come to do some research on it. And it was a a basketball league set up by Americans during the colonial period specifically so that people didn't develop really strong regional identities that would, you know, as they were trying to build national identity. So, you know, thinking around the way in which different teams are branded around the world, the identity of place and team in the United States is just, it's so, it's so powerful. And I wanted to talk about the role that athletics plays in the construction of status quo identity and its potential for counter hegemonic or progressive protest identity. What's interesting about where we're at right now, we know that athletes face a backlash, right? We know that Tommy Smith and John Carlos were expelled from the Olympic Games for their protest. Colin Kaepernick has famously been excluded from participation in the NFL. And this indicates a real paradox around sports that on the one hand, you have players becoming more and more willing to represent the underserved, the underrepresented, the impoverished sectors of our society and activists stand. But it's also a place where a large section of the fan base, I would say a preponderant section of ownership, are vociferous supporters of the status quo, even a status quo with racist or sexist or misogynistic overtones. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the way those two different political forces interact with one another in professional athletics in the United States. Wow, 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 wow. That's, that's such an amazing question. And I, you know, I don't know if I can do justice to that, but I'll try my best to answer that. So one of the things, you know, especially with your mention of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Peter Norman, the Australian runner who, who was also a silver medalist at those Olympics, who stood in solidarity with them and the Olympic Project for Human Rights is right. that we see the ways that the nation also absorbs dissent. So the pushing back by Tommy Smith and John Carlos was also at the time of the murder assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the slow spiral downward of the rights gained by the civil rights movement. And so what we have is the state has always used various others to really reclaim the status quo to make changes, right? Those changes are made in very minuscule and insignificant ways that don't allow for radical change. So at the height of the protests during the 1968 Olympics, facing the global outcry for justice by colonized nations, as well as the ways in which at the height of the Cold War, The Soviets were looking at the U.S. and its failure to live up to these so-called democratic 
ideals because of the racism inherent in U.S. society. The U.S. Olympic Committee and the U.S. government, which Douglas Hartman in his beautiful book has written about, showcases how they brought in Jesse Owens as the incredibly moderate African-American to negotiate with Smith and Carlos, but in addition to become the sign of the movement. And so that's where, you know, right now at this moment, I, as a sports scholar, am incredibly worried about the ways in which we have the um, the NBA players, instead of consulting with, you know, Alicia Garza, um, Opal Tometi, and, and Patrice Coolers, or even with Colin Kaepernick, they sought the advice in former President Barack Obama. And so we see the ways in which Obama's call for them to resume play instead of using this as a moment to just completely dismantle sport as a certain type of infrastructure and claim incredible alliance with the streets was co-opted by Obama's call, who we cannot forget has also been labeled by communities of color on the ground as the deporter-in-chief and the drone warfare-in-chief, right? And so what, what worries me is how does this type of, you know, working with the larger establishment, which is important to also have a seat at the table, but how does our seat at the table be used to push for structural change, right? And that's where here... I would love to see much more of the NBA uh, players really align themselves with the radical work of the WNBA and with the folks on the streets to push for a much more of a structural realignment and acknowledgement of white supremacy and anti-black racism, which is most clearly seen in the acts of police brutality. So I think sport offers us that realm, right? And this is where we see sport is never one thing. It doesn't come already with meanings, but rather sport is used strategically by various actors for various causes. And that's where, you know, the activism of the NBA and the WNBA give us a realm where we can see how sport is used to call for Black Lives Matter and for a much greater notion of equitable citizenship whereas the ways sport is used at the conservative uh, um, elements of our country and by Trump to talk about who is the good national, you know, subject, right? And to use all kinds of racist stereotypes of black and brown athletes shows us how sport can be used in many ways, but more importantly, it can be taken in by the very nation state that we hope to challenge. And that's where we have to be really, really careful. I wanted just to talk just a bit about Desi Hoop Dreams, your your book. And in, in that book, you're, you're writing primarily about South Asian uh, basketball leagues. One of the points you make in the book is that participation in sports in this country works to maybe alter, but also cement ethnic identity in the U.S. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you discovered when you started looking at, at these sports leagues. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very, very much. And so one of the things that you know, I look at in my book is to look at how sport as the emblem of the nation is not democratic and open to all, where we understand sport as a space grounded in merit, the lives of the South Asian American community, but especially Pakistani Muslim Americans who have been the most detained and deported following 9-11, shows us how the public spaces of sport, be it high school ball, collegiate ball or multiracial citywide leagues are the site of exclusion. So the very realm, the public realm that we think as the most democratic site is the site where they are racialized as nerds and as terrorists seen as either not man enough to play the sport and embody Americanness, especially in a sport so quintessentially American as basketball and also racialized as terrorists to share, uh, to basically say that they don't have either the bodily ability or the cultural knowledge that they're too foreign to play a sport like basketball. So in my book, I look at the ways in which these young men react to their stereotyping and racialization and 
to the contradictory discourse of what public spaces mean in the U.S., construct private, co-ethnic-only South Asian American basketball leagues, which also includes players from Canada, to have a space where they can claim national masculinity and basketball masculinity on their own terms. So it is through this private exclusive space that they then offer their renditions of Americanness, which is palatable, right? To be able to have a crossover, to block a shot, to dunk on someone, to give a no look pass, all these things that are read as outside of their bodies as impossible things for them. They're able to do it in that space. And through that, they construct an idea of Asian American and South Asian American identity that incorporates both their social histories of coming from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, but also intertwines it with U.S. popular culture and U.S. race to then create their own boundaries of belonging, both in the nation and in their communities, that while they open up this boundary to include themselves, to be ballers and shot callers has also meant that you got to exclude others. And so that has meant that their efforts to really provide a social justice challenge to the racial imagination of sport in the U.S. is black and white has also meant that they've had to exclude women, gay masculinities, and specifically African-American athletes, right? And this is where we see how the boundaries of citizenship in the U.S. are always constructed through race, even through the sporting leagues. And thus, Asian-Americans have been imagined as too much brain and not having the body and never being able to be man enough, while African-Americans are imagined as too bodily gifted, as too innate and biologically aggressive and tough, and then seen as too manly to really take part in something that is based on merit like sport, and thus they're excluded from other realms, which we know the activism of Audre Lorde, June Jordan, and Adrian Rich at City College in the 60s and 70s was to create opportunities for black and brown bodies and students at City College because they were seen as not meant for the world of the mind. So in this process, through my book, we also see how South Asian Americans manage their racialization by creating their own racializations of African-Americans, the Latinx community, the larger Asian-American community, and that race is not built just in opposition to the dominant white center. And through this, what we see in my book is that whiteness then goes completely unmarked. It becomes invisible, even though it's the norm whereby white men are seen as having both the brain and the body to play, which, you know, in the case of football, we see the love and the hype for the white quarterback and in basketball, the white point guard, right? I mean, in my book, I showcase how in our attempts to challenge the status quo, we have to be really careful not to absorb its language of inclusion and its boundaries of citizenship that continue to exclude a wide spectrum of communities of color, women, and gay masculinities. Joining our conversation is David Caldwell. He's the vice president of the NFL Alumni Association, a member of the NFL Alumni Medical Advisory Board. He played for the Indianapolis Colts, for the New York Giants, and for the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Canada. And he's currently the co-owner of the Street Smart Salesman, which is a business development company. David also is the son of David Caldwell Sr., who graduated from CCNY. Mr. Caldwell, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> oh, we're really pleased that you're with us. Let me jump right in. It's been a while since you played for NFL, not, you know, decades and decades, but several years. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference, if there is one, between what we're seeing today and what you experienced in your years as a player. Do you think things are more politicized now, or is that just the impression of an outsider? And inside the clubhouse, it was maybe things today look a lot like what they looked like when you were in the league? No, well, first off, yeah, you're right. It has been a, a, a while. Um, turn around and it's almost about what, like eight years, seven years. So when I look at my experience when I was playing compared to now, as far as the things that are getting the attention, I always think that 
the culture, whatever the culture is, it kind of determines what's going to be emphasized and what the light is going to be shined on. So therefore, obviously these same problems, you know, that we're now actively protesting and you're seeing a lot of players on the forefront shining a light on these issues, they've always been there. However, the culture, whether that's with the politics now, whether that's with we have more camera footage of black people get it, black men, black women being killed because there's Instagram and it's bigger on social media and we're seeing a lot of these things. Those all factor into determining the culture. And now because of these things, there's this light shined on it. And because you add the politics in it as well, with things being politicized to kind of push one party or another party's agenda, everything rolled up in one kind of calls for players to be a little bit more outspoken, maybe more than when I was playing. But like you said earlier, this is something that has been going on in sports for for years. However, when you have a cultural shift and something significant that happens for the world to see, it puts more pressure on athletes and leaders in the community to stand up and to speak on things and to give a voice to the people who may not have a voice. You touched on something in your answer that I want to circle back to, which is the role of social media. You know, and football in particular is a little bit different than, you know, basketball or even soccer in that, you know, players on the field, they're covered up. You've got a helmet, you've got a face guard. Some people wear tinted face shields. But, you know, when, when I was putting this show together, one of the things that drew you to my attention was you're very active on social media, strong supporter of Colin Kaepernick. You tweet as often about issues of social justice as anything else. And I guess I, my question is, how big do you think the role of social media has been contributing to the amplification of athletes' voices in recent years? And, and was that something that evolved you in your playing days? Yes. And it's actually, it's funny that you think that I'm active now because um, if you talk to my family members and friends in my last couple of years in Canada, that's when I was going through an awakening within myself spiritually, politically, just how I, my perspective on how I saw the world and contributions I wanted to make to society. So my social media before, like what it is right now, let's say on a scale of a hundred, before it was a hundred, then right now it's about eight or a nine. And maybe that's just us having this conversation showing me that I need to be a little bit more active to maybe reach the level that I was at before. However, with social media and kind of just giving my background and and also trying to answer your question at the same time, it's your platform. And if we've learned nothing else with our president right now, whether you like him or, or don't like him, that's your opinion. However, what we have to take away from is how he was able to come to power in the most powerful position in the world. And that's through media outlets through him having Celebrity Apprentice. We used to look down on Donald Trump when he was first running, not taking him seriously, but we didn't realize the power of social influence and just influence through media. And that is what he had. And when you have that influence among people, you have different people looking at you for whatever reason, that influence is power. So therefore, the things that you're talking about on social media, if LeBron's speaking about it, if Colin Kaepernick's doing something, if all of these powerful athletes that we follow, whether they're just celebrities through sports and things that have nothing to do with politics, we can still learn through them. And it's a lot different when we talk about our black leaders, because the good thing about it is, you know, some have been willing to speak up. However, the negative is most of our black leaders who we look up to for everything are only through entertainment, sports, and a lot of these things, when you look at other cultures, those are not the leaders of the culture. When you think about strong Jewish leaders, you're not necessarily thinking about athletes. When you think about strong Asian leaders, you're not necessarily thinking about athletes. However, due to the position that we're in and being in this society, that is one of the things, becoming an athlete, becoming an entertainer, that's how we see that we can become successful not on a platform that, hey, being successful and being cool is becoming a doctor, becoming an attorney, owning a business. All of these things are not traditionally what we've seen as being cool and quote unquote making it in the black community. So therefore, a lot of our leaders, they have generated these tremendous platforms through 
other sources rather than would traditionally be seen. So ours are through athletes, entertainers. So they do have a little bit of extra pressure on them and their platform that they can use to communicate to the people are through social media. So I'm sorry to kind of go off on a tangent, but to kind of get back to your question, as far as the importance of social media, it's everything. That's how you communicate with people. That's why our president is tweeting right now, because that's the fastest way. We've never had a faster way to communicate directly with people. And that influences power. And it just kind of goes hand in hand with creating a culture. So therefore, when we have Kaepernick take a knee and we have LeBron show instant support, just like that, LeBron's followers are kind of, okay, we're on board with Kaepernick. So it's very powerful. And I think that players do have to be be very careful with what they're posting, but at the same time, you know, use it as a tool. You know, when you're at the, we're in a position right now in this American society where we're not where we would like to be. So therefore it's all hands on deck. We need as much support pushing us in the right direction as we can get. And um, social media is a great tool for that. Listening to you evokes so many thoughts. And one of them, I find myself both with you and with Professor Thangaraj's remarks, thinking about what I know from my years of doing research in the Philippines. And, and one of them is there was a time after the democratization process, or I should say at least the restoration of elected processes in the Philippines, where every candidate that was prominent was either an actor or an athlete. So you think about Senator Manny Pacquiao, but there was you know, Olympic bowler Bong Ku who ran for office and all of the movie stars filtered into politics. And one of the reasons for that was that there were old closed political machines. So you had to be part of a political dynasty to be elected. But then you have electoral democracy and the people that had the closest link or the most accessible link to the population, which wasn't social media at the time, it was celebrity. These are the people that had the most immediate cachet because they could operate outside of those closed systems. So it strikes me that however you do it in whatever society, celebrity of any kind, but particularly athletic celebrity, gives you that kind of direct connection to a population, whether you're running for elected office or simply giving voice to a movement. And, and so you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting. You talked about your years in Canada and your own kind of political awakening. And you cast that in terms of a sense of responsibility. And, you know, you, you even said that maybe in our conversation now, you're feeling a responsibility to get back to those years of heightened uh, social media activity to kind of carry your weight. And, and I, I guess I want to ask you to tell us a little bit more about that awakening and the relationship between what you did and what you were saying and this sense of what you thought your responsibility as an athlete was. I hope that's not too personal a question. It just fascinated me the way you framed your increased political activity. No, it's not too much of a personal question at all. And I'm glad you asked me that because elaborating on it will kind of make it make more sense. So when I was in Canada, that was around the time where um, I believe that was when Trayvon Martin was killed. And in Canada, a lot of guys that were from all over America, but a lot of guys that were from Canada. And of course, I was meeting, you know, I was mingling with different Canadians and hearing their perspective on America. And I had a close friend, Fred Plessius. He was a Haitian French Canadian. Growing up, when you're in these black communities, African-American communities, when you think about Haitians and stuff, kind of like, oh, you know, we're, we're so naive and ignorant in our thinking. It's like, oh, no, those are the Haitians. They, we, we, we would almost like not necessarily look down, but we always saw them as different, maybe make different jokes, even amongst our friends that were Haitians. And it's terrible. But that's just kind of, I'm just letting you know that to kind of set my mindset. So Fred, he was laughing at me and he was like, you know, you silly black Americans. And he was really coming at me in a way where it's like, hold on. Like, and it made me think about stuff. And it's like from your religion to like, oh, you, you practice this religion that those people gave to you, the same people that are oppressing you. And he would come at me with so many different things. And um, I always felt that I was a pretty enlightened or, or you know, the, the word now is woke um, when it came to a lot of these issues. But he took it to another level in challenging me. And it made me feel 
almost as if like, what have I been doing? And whatever it is that I've been doing, it isn't enough. So I really just started to read and I started, it just gave me a new perspective of how I was seeing things and the different documentaries that I would look at. I got addicted and it was so addicting that I would speak up on certain things on social media, whether it was religion or politics or, you know, whether it was Trayvon Martin, the treatment of black Americans, it became to be totally honest, it put me in a, almost a depressed state. And my parents and my family members, I remember my dad specifically reaching out to close friends of mine and saying, like, we're worried about him. And I just was so addicted to speaking out about certain things. But it's almost like you're going down this dark path. And once you start to go down it, it's going to open up a lot of doors that you have to be prepared to deal with because now you're seeing things that you would normally see and they wouldn't bother you. But now you're seeing them and you're like, I don't feel like I'm being the man that I want to be if I don't address this in the way that I believe that I should. So I think for me, that was a part of my awakening where I had to get over. You put certain stuff on Twitter and this was a, in a, I was in a position where I knew that I was only going to play football for maybe a year or two longer. I wanted to make a transition into life after football. And my parents, friends would say, hey, you have to be careful tweeting certain things, putting certain stuff on your Instagram, because you're going to lose out on opportunities that you never even may know that you would have had if you didn't put up that type of stuff. And for me, it caused an internal conflict as well as conflict with family members and friends where it's like, well, if everybody was doing this and everybody was standing up for the things that I'm bringing up, you guys are acknowledging that you agree with them in a private conversation. However, a private conversation is not going to teach others that you may be influencing. So it was frustrating for me. It's like, well, you guys are worried about me speaking out. But if everybody was speaking out, then they wouldn't be able to target one person. Then they would understand maybe and open up their eyes to say it's not just one crazy black guy speaking about these things. Actually, this is how a lot of black Americans feel. And that's why what Colin Kaepernick did and this was around that same time, I believe. No, actually, it was, it was a couple years before. But what Colin Kaepernick did, it, it meant so much to me. And it really hit me in a way that I feel that it, it didn't necessarily hit other people. Because what Colin Kaepernick did, he put his, his career on the line, his family, um, his well-being, everything that he did, he put on the line to, for issues that he would never even face, most likely. Colin Kaepernick being a celebrity quarterback is never going to have to worry about the police shooting him 90%, 99% of the time. He's doing that for people like me, people who aren't celebrities, my family members, for black Americans throughout the country who do not have a voice. However, he did not get the support of other players. He did not get the support of fans. I have not watched an NFL game since Colin Kaepernick got blackballed from the league because it didn't sit well with me. And I didn't feel I could, I cannot support a league who on purpose, like they're, they blackballed somebody and kicked them out of a league. And, and what do they do to try to stop any movement? You take money from a movement. So therefore, when it came to Colin Kaepernick, it's like, Oh, let's just take away his platform. Even though he's speaking out for the league is over 70% black. These people, everybody in their family members are not playing in the NFL and don't have that celebrity. So he's just speaking out for, hey, we, we just don't want to get shot anymore. We just want to be treated fair. Uh, he's not looking for revenge. He's not looking to spark up anything like that, a war. He just wanted to acknowledge certain things that are happening and use his voice um, for the voiceless people. So when you see, I know there were Eric Reed. That's why I love Eric Reed. He took a knee with Kaepernick from the beginning and continued to do it and continued to voice exactly why he was taking a knee. But you see other players in the NFL, I have close friends that are playing, and I would ask them, like, hey, would you take a knee? They say, hell no, I'm not taking a knee. Like, and, and for me, it's like, okay, you're clearly worried about paying your bills, these other things. However, if everybody in that locker room just came together, white and black, and said, hey, we're all taking a knee, or we're not playing until Colin Kaepernick has a job, then this would take 48 hours for the NFL to say, you know what, if we don't have any players, this just looks bad. And it's almost like with the George Floyd situation, and I'm sorry to ramble on, but when the NFL players came together after the George Floyd situation and put out a video saying, we're tired of this, we're tired of that, you blackball Colin Kaepernick, 
But then Roger Goodell, the commissioner, just comes out and says, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't we apologize for not listening to listening to you guys sooner. But Kaepernick is still not playing. And Kaepernick is the face of this movement. So they're trying they're still silencing Colin Kaepernick after you've had NFL scouts and NFL coaches acknowledge that he's good enough to play. So how can you guys continue to just allow them to throw you crumbs when you're asking for a meal and you deserve a meal and you just like, Oh, the commissioner apologized. So we can go back to playing. What about your brother, Colin Kaepernick? And it's more than just Colin Kaepernick. It's what Colin Kaepernick represents. And you guys are allowing that this league to silence them just for crumbs. And it's, and that always bothered me and frustrated me and frustrates me to this day when every Sunday and Monday, when there's, you know, every, all my friends are watching football, I know that my family is not watching and it makes it a lot. It makes it very hard. It makes it hard to your, your clients and the people you work with asking you to go watch football games and to go do this. And you have to say no, and you might explain why, but you're risking this and risking that. I'm going to stop here because I'm rambling. And then I'm going to let you pick it up with any questions based on everything that I just said that you may have, but I'm sorry for rambling. Listen, what you call rambling, I call profound, focused conversation and some real insight. David, I can't let you go without giving you a chance to respond directly to, they wouldn't say it with with, with football players, but the kind of shut up and dribble comment, the stay in your lane, all the criticism we hear about activism not being the job of a professional athlete. I think I know what you think about that, but I sure would like to hear what you have to say about that, that criticism. Absolutely. So when it comes to, you know, you hear a lot about the shut up and dribble, um, just, you know, stay in your lane. You know, for me, we understand what that is. That's just a strategy to get people to just continue doing what you're doing. Whenever people are in power, the biggest threat to power are the people beneath them doing anything differently than what they have been doing to keep the people who are in power to remain having that power. So therefore, that is exactly what people are doing. But when you look at any other issue, when, when people come out and talk about when a lot of these players and athletes, entertainers come out and talk about, hey, you know, this is wrong. We want fair treatment. We want equality. Our lives matter. When it comes to all these things, nobody has an issue with in October when the players all wear pink and speak about on breast cancer awareness or other initiatives, which are extremely important for the NFL and any league and organization to support. This is only an issue when it comes to speaking out about black issues where they want you to just kind of shut up and dribble because it doesn't align with their agenda. So I, I don't necessarily get too back and forth with the whole setup and dribble. It's, it's something like, it's a cute thing. Like, Oh, you guys tried that. Like that's not going to work here. It's one of those funny things where nobody questions, or maybe some people now when um, Bill Gates is with Microsoft and then now he's working with doing vaccine uh, research. So other people are allowed to move from one lane to another. And these same people who will come out and say, like, shut up and dribble, stay in your lane. A lot of those people um, don't have an issue with Donald Trump being the celebrity apprentice going from there to going to president. So that's just a way for the powers that be to muzzle and to kind of just keep people at bay and to just say, hey, stay. It, it pretty much when I hear that, it's just like stay in your place, boy. So I understand and I feel like once I know, I'm well aware of where I am in this society. I'm a black man living in America. I'm well aware of that. So I'm I've done, you know, there's still a lot more research for me to do history-wise, but I'm, I know where I am. So a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily surprise me. For me, I'm always just thinking of a way where it's like, okay, you know, let them think that I'm still that stay in your place boy, but quietly I'll be working towards building and growing and make sure that I'm receiving the right mentorship and also doing mentoring on my own to, to kind of get people out of this bubble to kind of expand everyone's thinking and perspective, because a lot of times that's all it takes. For me, it was a, a friend named Fred in, in Canada. Um, but for others, you never know what may spark that interest to kind of learn and to go above and beyond what we've traditionally been taught. Before I came into this job, my own research was on social movements and protests. And one of the things that transcends all movements is that leadership is a resource to a movement. Communication is a resource. The ability to reach and convince an audience is a resource to movements. And so if you care about justice, if you care about equality in the United States, if you are against 
systemic racism or police violence, then all of these discussions about athletes, actors, musicians, professors taking a stand against systemic racism, all of that is appropriate. We're living in a time where in profession after profession, men and women of conscience are turning away from the routine rhythms of their life. And in some cases, being forced away from the routine rhythms of their life by COVID-19 and directing their attention and their resources towards the construction of a more just society and the opposition of injustice and repression and racism in this society. If you are listening to this and you're thinking about the appropriateness, and let's leave aside what you believe. Let's talk about the appropriateness of acting on those beliefs and turning away from the routines of your normal work. I hope this conversation has been informative for you. I've learned so much from the two of you. And I think this has been an enlightening, but also an inspirational conversation that we need at this moment. And so I'd like to thank you, David Caldwell and Professor Thangaraj. I thank the audience I've been listening to From City to the World. Gentlemen, I want to give you each 30 seconds to say whatever else you've left unsaid in this segment. Professor Thangaraj, you want to go first? Yeah, thank you very, very much, President Boudreau. And I want to thank Dak. And, you know, to really go back to what Dak said about that time in Canada being such an amazing experience and informative space. And I think that's where activism in sport is also activism in education. And we need greater funding for our public universities, especially CUNY as one of those spaces where that activism is always alive. And now more than ever, we need to support our public institutions of higher learning and support indigenous studies, Asian American studies, black studies, and Latinx studies in order to know our histories and create the worlds that can really enliven and support all of us. David, you have any last shots for us? Uh, last one is actually whenever I'm talking to a group of kids or, or anybody actually, but never, never let anybody box you in. That's something that I always tell people, and it's something that I have to remind myself to never let anybody box you in. If you see something that's wrong, you have the power to change it. However, you have to be willing to do that research, to learn more about it, and to figure out the best possible way to go about solving that issue. So um, for me, it's just never let them box you in. And I, once again, I appreciate President Boudreaux. I appreciate Professor Tangaraj. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, just for having me on. And I look forward to continued conversations, figuring out how we can solve a lot of these issues. I appreciate that. Thank you both for your wisdom and your time today. The show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. Uh, I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of City College of New York. You've been listening to From City to the World. Thanks for listening, everybody.